For everyone else, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. Young disciples, you'll need that for your sermon guides. You can find that on page 877 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. An overview of our sermon today. I'm going to be talking about the truly rich young ruler. Young disciples, you need that word truly. And I want to point out two things. First of all, beware the poverty of wealth. And second of all, behold the wealth of poverty. With that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. And if you're not able to stand, we ask that you stand with us in your hearts. Again, today's passage is Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18 and going through verse 30. Church, hear the word of the Lord. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time, and in the age to come, eternal life. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's respond together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. On June 23rd, 2018, a soccer team of 12 boys and their coach were exploring a cave in northern Thailand when suddenly torrential rain caused the cave to flood, trapping them deep inside. A week later, two British divers made their way through the water and found the team enclosed in a chamber on a small island of elevated rock two and a half miles inside the cave. After exploring every imaginable option to rescue them, the only possibility before the monsoon rains flooded the cave completely included the following. The boys would be dressed in a wetsuit and a full-pressure face mask with an oxygen tank clipped to their front and a tether on their back in case they were lost in poor visibility. 
then they would be given an anesthetic to render them fully unconscious so that they wouldn't panic. They would also be given other injections to steady their heart rates and to reduce saliva to prevent choking in the mask. The anesthetic would only last about 45 minutes, requiring divers who were not medically trained, by the way, to stop multiple times to deliver more anesthetic during the three-hour journey. Upon reaching a dry section, the divers would remove the boys' dive gear, carry them to the next section of water, put the dive gear back on, and continue in the water. Then, near the end, the boys would be put on stretchers and alternatively carried, slid, and ziplined out of the cave. Now, I don't know about y'all, but that sounds absolutely terrifying. Yes, they were slowly starving and suffocating in a putrid, pitch-black cavern. And yes, what awaited them on the other side was the incomparable abundance of life and light and air. But in the face of the figurative, perhaps literal, death that they would have to go through to get there, the temptation would have been, as crazy as it sounds, to prefer the relative comforts of the cave, to not entrust themselves to the rescuers. Now, interestingly, as we pick back up in the Gospel of Luke, in this journey section about approaching God humbly, The context that immediately precedes today's passage is the story of little children, little boys, little girls, being brought to Jesus. And if you're familiar with that story, then you know that at first the disciples turned away the children and the parents. But then Jesus was indignant and responded to them this way. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So Jesus comes laying before us the incomparable abundance of the kingdom of God, to which our little kingdom in comparison is like a putrid, pitch-black cavern. But in order to enter its light and life and air, we must come humbly like children and entrust ourselves to the rescuer you see the connection and if we don't then we'll end up like the young man of whom we're about to read and study today and whose story warns us with this beware young disciples you need that word the poverty of wealth so begin reading with me in verse 18 and a ruler asked him Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So first off, let's clarify who this person is. Since this story is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, like we can draw some details together. This was a young man, probably of noble birth, who was extremely wealthy, had some position of authority in society, and was probably known for being a pretty great guy. He's the kind of guy that everything he touches turns to gold. You know that kind of person? Here he is. Thus, it's interesting that he comes to Jesus in light of the fact that he would have been viewed as a shoe-in for eternal life already. Didn't need anything in people's eyes. 
And in that day, just as in this day, if you were wealthy, successful, and pious, then everyone took these as signs that God was especially pleased with you. But what we find is, even among the richest and most admired people in society, there is a gnawing sense that something is still missing. In his book called Ecclesiastes, one of the most accomplished young rulers in the history of the world, named Solomon, explained it with this short statement. He said, God has set eternity in the human heart. We long for something more than what is temporary. And so this young man, sensing that he may lack it, kneels before Jesus, Mark adds. He comes seeking to gain the eternal and yet does so in the same way that he has gained the temporal. He says, what must I do? It's similar to last week's question that we wrestled with, you know, that's at the subconscious of every person in our culture. How can I be innocent? When the last gavel bangs in the halls of justice, how can I be vindicated, declared right and innocent? And Jesus responds in some surprising ways in this passage. Look at verse 19. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, some have taken this to say that Jesus is admitting that he's not God and he's not good. But it's actually just the opposite here. His question is piercing and it's inviting. It's inviting the man to reflect on the implications of his greeting. You see, good teacher would have been a weird phrase precisely because of what Jesus says here. The word for good at that time was only used in reference to God, not any man. So as best that we can understand, the man used it not to honor Jesus as God. He's not quite there, but to flatter him. Okay? And that makes sense if we see it as part of his effort to earn eternal life. But Jesus ain't falling for this, is he? So we read in verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. So Jesus is like, okay. You want to do what it takes? Here's five of the ten commandments. Keep those. And interestingly, these aren't the commandments that are directed upward toward God, the ones that we would probably associate most closely with, like, eternal things. But these are the commandments that are directed outwardly toward people. The demand that Jesus lays upon him here is the whole life generosity of an outward-oriented heart. And that may seem like he's saying that you can earn eternal life, but let me just tell you, If you want to be absolutely spiritually decimated, then just study the depths of what the Ten Commandments actually require of you. Now, I have thought about us as a church going through the Ten Commandments as a sermon series, one commandment at at a time to unpack it. But I don't know if I want to do that to y'all. I don't know if y'all ready for that. I don't know if I'm ready for that, man. My job might be on the line by the time we get through, through these things. Let me give you an example. You know the Ten Commandments, the commandment that says, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. The way that we interpret that is what? 
don't say GD, don't use God's name in a funny way, don't do this and don't do that. We've turned it into a semantical mantra that you can keep pretty easily. When in the spirit of the law is that you would not act in any way that would bring shame upon God such that you've taken his name upon you, but it's been in vain because you're not acting in a godly way. Oh, wait a minute. That invades your heart, your thoughts, your every moment, okay? It decimates us, the Ten Commandments, the law of God. And so God's law, again, we said this last week, is like that bright mirror that, explo- that exposes every flaw in your complexion. But to our astonishment, the man replies in this way in verse 21. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a guy with like oozing, scarring chicken pox all over his face who looks in the mirror and says, Looking good. Let's go on a date, right? What that means is he actually hasn't really looked in the mirror at all, has he? What has he looked at instead that has him deceived so much to make him so self-assured? Well, I think it's wrapped up in a phrase that Jesus uses in the parable of the sower. The deceitfulness of riches. When an abundance of anything good comes our way in life, especially when we are young, And especially when it's money or success or power, it often deceives us into thinking that there is something special about us, that everything we touch just turns to gold. God must be pleased. Now, you can think of this in a way that is foreign to you, or I can just bring it home. And here's how I'm going to bring it home. When you play a board game, all right, you get out Settlers of Catan, or you got Monopoly, and you become that person who every single turn, you just get all the stuff, all the money, all the goods coming your way. How do you act? Are you humble? You just keep quietly playing your game to try to win? No, you don't. Maybe on the outside you do that. You're a really special person. But on the inside you're like, man, I am awesome. Start gloating, you know, bragging, boasting. Maybe by the end God humbles you by bringing somebody out of nowhere who beats you. And then you're like, ah, did I lose it? I was doing so great. You see, when early on in life, goods are coming your way, you just get arrogant about it. You think that there's something special about you. It's human, sinful nature. Now, I'm not saying you're being a sinner when you're playing a game. Okay, so don't hear that. But this is the way that the world thinks. But Jesus turns that upside down. He says in verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, And in order for us to hear what Jesus is saying rightly, we need to consider that Mark adds, Jesus loved him. He's saying this out of love, not out of spite. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Bright mirror right in his eyes. And Jesus pierces straight into the heart. And now we would expect him to say, we expect Jesus to say something like this. Well, actually, you're a lawbreaker. If you've broken one, you've broken them all. But if you put your trust in me, you'll be saved. 
like a perfect like Romans road gospel explanation that Jesus could just lay down for this guy. But that's not what he says, is it? He requires something of the man that we have no record of him requiring of anyone else in all the scriptures. He says, sell all you have and give it to the poor. Like even in the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, which we're going to study in just a couple of weeks, Zacchaeus gives away only half of his wealth to the poor. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house today. So why such a burden on this young man? This doesn't seem fair. Is this earning salvation? Well, in a letter correspondence with C.S. Lewis, a young atheist wrote this. I now see that becoming a Christian involves not one leap, but two. The leap to Christ and the leap away. Yes, being a Christian means putting your trust in Jesus as Savior. But it also means surrendering your life to Jesus as Lord. And we all have our own Alamo, don't we? Some treasure that we will hold on to to the death and refuse to surrender to Jesus. And that is always the thing that Jesus will go after. Because that treasure is the gateway to your heart. And that's what he wants. And so for this man, his treasure was money. Young disciples, that's why Jesus told him to sell all his things. Because he wanted this man's heart. So great was the value of money to this young man. That at the thought of parting with it, he was, quote, very sad. This is a, a word that could be translated also deeply grieved. It's the same word, in fact, used in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So you can only be that sad over losing something if it lies at the nearest and dearest part. Of your heart. And Jesus exposes that idolatry. The man lacks the whole life generosity of an outward oriented heart. And he'd rather die than gain a new heart. And that is very sad indeed. So we read in verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said... How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So the analogy that Jesus sets up here, it contrasts two things. That which was the largest animal that people encountered in that day and the smallest opening in people's daily lives. And so this is hyperbole here. A camel cannot pass through the eye of a needle. Young disciples, you can write no in that section of your sermon guide. A camel cannot pass through the eye of a needle. It would be like us saying, that has a snowball's chance in July. Y'all know that phrase? Okay. So what he's getting at is, wealth can shrink the door of the kingdom down to an impassable peephole. That's what's happening here. 
So can a person enter the kingdom by their wealth, young disciples? What do you think? Yes or no? I see somebody doing this number. No, they cannot. You cannot buy a ticket into heaven with your money. But here's the more interesting thing. Nowhere in Scripture does it condemn wealth as a sin. The love of money, yes, that's different. But money itself, no. Job, Solomon, Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia, all wealthy. All in the kingdom. So why does Jesus essentially say that it's impossible for the wealthy to have eternal life? That seems unfair, doesn't it? Well, for one, as I heard a pastor say, money is like fire. It's incredibly good and useful, but also incredibly dangerous. All other hindrances to salvation, money has a way of like enhancing those. But far more than that, and relevant to everyone in this room, we have to understand that wealth can be expressed in a million different ways besides money. Let me give you some examples. Time. Do you value your time? You're, if you're living in America, yes, you do. Insanely high value. Do you have it in equal measure as everyone else? Yes, you do. 24 hours a day. You're wealthy in time, whether you feel like you are or not. What about plans? You're wealthy in the plans that you have for your life. What about intellect, the intelligence, the knowledge that God has given you? What about the home that God has given you? What about your presence? You know that you can be physically present somewhere and not really present, not really show up there. You're wealthy in presence. What about the skills that you have, the talents that you have, the influence that you have, your life experience, your achievements, your social standing? What about the children that you have? Are you wealthy in children? Are you wealthy in relationships? Are you wealthy in physical ability? Are you wealthy in luck? Like things have just kind of gone your way. You see, the law's demand of whole life generosity flowing from an outward-oriented heart means the complete surrender of wealth in all its expressions. We take what Jesus says here and we make it into a mantra that a man or a woman can keep in their own strength. Well, then I'm not going to be overwhelmed by a desire for money. I'm going to give it away. Look, I'm entering the kingdom. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm asking for whole heart, whole life generosity. Every expression of wealth that you have, you surrender it to Jesus. Take your crown off, you give your crown to him. He's, Whatever you want with the wealth that you've given me, it belongs to you anyways, you, you have it. You see, don't be the Pharisee from last week who villainizes others so that you feel better about yourself. We're all wealthy in different expressions, y'all. The law decimates us, and if you see that rightly, then you'll understand why they say in verse 26, then who can be saved? If the wealthy person, whom everybody perceives as a shoe-in for eternal life already, can't be saved, then who in the world can? And this is what I mean by the phrase, beware the poverty of wealth. It leaves you saying to yourself, 
I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. When in reality, God says, loving you says, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. And so rich or poor, Jesus loves you enough to tell you what you lack and to make you deeply sad about it. He will go after that treasure in your heart because it's the only way that you can see, verse 27, that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Young disciples, you need those two words, impossible and possible. What you lack, he is able to give. Where you fail in generosity, he is full of generosity. That camel can pass through the needle, but only by God alone. How exactly? Well, that brings us to our second application this morning. Behold the wealth of poverty. Young disciples, you need that word, behold. Of course, when Peter's in the scene, y'all know that there's always a chance that he's going to assert his opinion, whether be it good or bad. And so we read in verse 28, and Peter said, See, we we have left our homes and followed you. Compared to, in other words, he's saying, compared to him, like we've done what you require. Like, isn't this another case study in missing the point? Like, didn't Jesus just say that salvation is impossible with man? Won't he tell them that their righteousness is like filthy rags? But to our surprise, we read this in verse 29. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come than eternal life. Jesus completely affirms Peter's statement, doesn't he? Like, rather than relying on their wealth, they have surrendered their wealth and all its expressions to Jesus. And he will not reject that, will he? He affirms it. But here's how generous Jesus is. He applies this not only to the disciples in that moment, but to anyone who leaves their treasure behind to follow him. And the specific treasure that he mentions, true to the outward-oriented nature of the story, is primarily people. Do you see that? Yes, Peter says homes, but what is a home without people? Like they surrendered These familial relationships behind to follow Jesus. And so this makes me think of our distributed members. Some of whom are in the room. Honestly, won't be in the room much longer. Because after the season of COVID, God's moving them back overseas. Right, KB? Woo! Finally! They are a picture of the whole life generosity of an outward-oriented heart. But I would bet that if you ask them... Maybe you should after this gathering is over. They would tell you that despite all they've lost over the years, they've gained far more. And not just in like a spiritualized, eternal reward sort of way, though that's true. But in the new relationships they've been given along the journey. And not least knowing Jesus more deeply. What beautiful examples in our midst. 
In fact, this is the very nature of true wealth. And this is eternal life, Jesus says. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We think eternal life like streets of gold, floating on clouds, never going to die. That's so great. Jesus says, this is eternal life right here. Knowing God. And knowing me. That's where the treasure is. You got that, you got everything. Thus, true wealth is held out to all of us, not just to the disciples here. And not just in being a distributed member. But it's held out in these ways. Parents raising up their children to be sent out on mission. Maybe to another part of our country. Maybe to another part of our world. It's in children. Got any children in the room? Where you at, kiddos? Wave at me. I see you. We see you. We're speaking this good word from the Bible to you too. Okay? This is in children following Jesus wherever he sends you. Right? This is in Antioch continuing to be ascending church, though it hurts like a smack in the heart every time our beloved people leave us to go on to other places. This is held out to us when we choose to branch a new family group. This is held out to us when we open our homes with hospitality. God's wealth is held out to us when we move into tough neighborhoods like the South End. When we give our time to participate in soccer, food pantry, or the community garden. When we leave the gathering to go serve in Antioch Kids. When we invest our energy into intentional gospel relationships. When we offer our emotions to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. When we give at least least 10% of our income away. The eternal life wealth of God is held out to us. And in doing so. Experiencing what it's like to gain far more than you give, not least knowing Jesus more deeply. This is what I mean by the phrase, behold the wealth of poverty. I'm not telling you to go and be poor, literally. What I'm talking about is surrendering to God all the different expressions of your wealth. A vow of poverty, so to speak, that says, all I have is yours. And it's open-handed. You, in that case, walk away deeply happy and lacking nothing. Isn't it upside down? Church, it's so upside down. But how can that happen, right? Like, it sounds so good. How's it possible? How can you pass through the eye of a needle? Well, the answer lies in the words following today's passage. Peter says, see... Behold, that's what that word means. Behold, look, Jesus, we have left our homes. In verse 31, Jesus says, see, same word. Look, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. Meaning I've left my home. I'm going to a place that I would not naturally want to go. But in obedience to God, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. You want to know what that is? Well, he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and shamefully treated. 
spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. You see, the disciples may have left their homes, but Jesus left everything. He was the good teacher, wasn't he? He was eternal life, wasn't he? He did keep all the commandments from his youth, didn't he? He did give all that he had to the poor. He did keep his treasure in heaven. He followed his father wherever he was led. He did have the whole life generosity of an outward-oriented heart. Y'all, he was wealth itself. In him are hidden all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. He is the truly rich young ruler. And yet for your sake, he became poor. And he became overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Listen, you can only be that sad over losing something if it lies at the very nearest and dearest part of your heart. So what what did Jesus lose that brought that kind of grief to him? Well, for one, he was about to lose intimacy with his father as the wrath of God for our sins was poured upon him at the cross. But second, he was also grappling with the decimating weight of having lost something that was a treasure to him. What was it? You. That's not sentimental 90s like contemporary Christian music. That's gospel truth. He had lost you. And so behold the wealth of his poverty. You. He gave everything so that he could have you. Don't hear that through a lens of shame. Hear that through a lens of wonder. That he would love you so much. And indeed he does. And so that when you recognize that you in your sin are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. And you come to follow him. Leaving behind the other filthy, foolish treasures that you've held on to. What does he do? He distributes all that he has to the poor. You, the poor. He gives you a new heart with the power and the desire to be generous in all of life. That's the thing here. That's why the gospel is so pivotal any time that we talk about money. Because you can walk away feeling so guilty. And a preacher can throw down and say, you live in America. You're among the wealthiest people in the world. You ought to be the most ashamed of yourselves. Now go out and do better. No, the gospel is pivotal here because it gives you the power to actually change your heart's desire to say, not just... Oh, I'll open my home, I guess. Oh, I'll just give 10% of my income away, I guess. But you say, no, I want to. I feel joy when I open up my home, even though it's hard. I feel joy when I open up my checkbook and I give money to distributed members who need it. I give it to the church who I know is on mission and needs it. Okay? Has the power to change that. And so, out of love for you today, I want to ask you something. What is the putrid, pitch-black cavern that you were still holding on to? 
What is the expression of wealth that is slowly starving and suffocating you? And yet, as crazy as it sounds, you are preferring its relative comforts over the incomparable abundance of God's life and light and air. What would make you walk away deeply sad today, not entrusting yourself to the rescuer? Listen, every single boy was rescued from that cave. How much more will he rescue you today? And here is the climactic moment of our gathering. For all of us to respond to Jesus. If you're here today and you're like, you know what? I am clinging to that treasure and God has opened my eyes to it. And I see how foolish it is to stay stuck in that cavern about to be drowned forever when I could have abundant life. (laughs) And so I'm going to give myself to Jesus and come out of that. Hey, the table is not for you. Come to Jesus himself. And he is ready to give you that life and light and air. But if you're here today in the climactic moment for you, you already trust Jesus is to come to this table, once again surrendering, once again laying down, once again recognizing that your heart has started to cling to treasure that is so far less than true wealth. Here's our climactic moment. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his closest friends, took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, He gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant by the shedding of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Today, church, we are announcing that this is eternal life, knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Our invitation is to come forward to break off a piece of bread, to dip it into the juice, and to take it, eat it, into your body, this physical experience, saying, I need Jesus that much. I need him within me. And a reminder of what he has done for you and his promise of what he will do when he comes. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus, you've walked away deeply sad over and over and over, come to him today and walk away deeply happy because of what he will give you in the fullness of true wealth. There'll be people in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this table and thank you for this word that points us to this table. We praise you, Lord, because you are the truly rich young ruler. We praise you, Lord, because you give us a gospel that doesn't just say, shame on you for being so wealthy. Get out of here and do better. That says, if you are poor, you are automatically more righteous. But a gospel that says, no, all of you are wealthy in different expressions. And so the invitation is to turn away from the foolishness of earthly treasure to put our hope and our trust and our hands upon that which is eternal treasure. Thank you that this gospel proclaims 
a truly rich young ruler who would come and take our place and give us the opportunity to know God again and to know Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Lord, have your way in these moments as we respond to you in whatever way that we need to respond. Though we will not be able to see it with the human eye, I pray that in the spiritual realm and in the darkness of human hearts, that there would be light breaking through and there would be the surrendering of earthly treasure that is nothing but a putrid, pitch black cavern compared to the light, life, and abundance of the kingdom of God. Be glorified, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.